Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are rejoined by very special guest, Seth Godin. Seth, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I thought we were going to talk about the authority of business, but I guess <sighs> we will have them dance with each other. I know the irony of the title, right? So is it okay if we jump right into the deep end? Can't wait. All right. So we are going to talk about the stories in and around your new book, The Song of Significance. And I heard in an interview that you were not planning to write a book. What did you see in the world around us that, I don't want to say forced, but what caused you to write this book? The list is really long. We've got billionaires firing disabled people online in public for kicks. We've got AI replacing the average slash mediocre work of lots and lots of people. We've got outsourcing and robots. We've got Amazon facing turnover as high as 30% that costs them a third of their annual profit. We've got mostly millions and millions of people who are exhausted, exhausted by work, exhausted by the broken promises, exhausted by the surveillance and the Zoom meetings, and wondering if this is all there is. And as we get older and we realize we don't get tomorrow over again, I felt like it was urgent to talk about what tomorrow could be. Fabulous. So you've given folks in the book, I don't want to say framework because it's not that, it's very specific, but it's not like a framework. It's more like a worldview or a way to imagine being mm -hmm. in a post-industrial economy or world or just situation where all of these crazy things that you just listed are happening. We all see it but it's not obvious how to move forward. So this show is mostly going to be listened to by people who do not have employees. They don't have that sort of top-down authority, managerial kind of situation in their lives. So how does this book speak to those folks who don't have a team of employees, but are probably leading an audience or trying to get people, even clients enrolled in some transformation what stories can you tell from the book that will help someone like that who doesn't have authority but still needs to gain this enrollment and set standards for people to move forward in a way that's making things better? Yeah, so the words are really important. And that's why I wanted to rant about the authority of business. Because business made so many people so much money, convenience, uh, and everything else for over 100 years that it changed school it changed the way we expect to be in the world. We got seduced into believing that the purpose of culture is to enable business, not the other way around. The second thing that's worth noting is that a team is different than employees under your direct control. And you have a huge advantage if your teams are informal because they require enrollment. You can't order someone to do you can't, what to do. You can't manage them, but you can lead them because leadership is voluntary. Leadership is a choice. And the opportunity going forward, maybe it's that some giant Fortune 20 corporation can shift their posture away from managerial insistence, but it's way more likely that adroit, committed, passionate, smart people are going to realize they have more tools than anyone on earth ever had before. More leverage, more ability to spread an idea, to be of influence and to make change happen. And so what I'm trying to help undo is industrial brainwashing and remind people that significance comes from making a change in the world. 
And so, yeah, you have a team. They're just not the people that work for you. It's something else. Right. So what, I don't know if I want to call it new, but what is this vision of leadership that you're presenting here? What are the, the characteristics of a leader that's effective? Well, again, let's start with where you are on the org chart has nothing to do with leadership. There are leaders who serve coffee as baristas because leadership is simply exploring the liminal space between here and there, figuring out something that might not work and going ahead and doing it. And so what we have is the chance to first say, what is the change I'm seeking to make? Second, who am I seeking to change? So if you're a consultant or you're somebody who has clients, we know who you are seeking to change, which is getting that client to do what you know to be the best course of action. Not to say, what do you need me to do? Not to say, you can pick anyone and I'm anyone, but to show up with a point of view and with an agenda where your slogan becomes, you'll pay a lot, but you get more than you pay for, because that's a race to the top, not the race to the bottom that so many of us are pushed into. Could we jump over to, I think, a very related topic, which is, which I love that you've named it page 19 thinking, or, or that is the name. I don't know if you named it. And talk about, first of all, I'll introduce that idea. And then I have a very specific question about it, if you wouldn't mind. So I devoted more than a year of my life as a full-time volunteer, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, to coordinating The Carbon Almanac, which is an award-winning, best-selling book that's been translated into half a dozen languages around the world. It was written, created, edited, laid out, typeset, footnoted, and fact-checked by 300 volunteers. Now there's 1,900 people on the team. And we knew going into it that the Almanac was going to have a page 19. We also knew that there wasn't one person on the team who had all of the skills and background to do all of the tasks of page 19. So how are we going to end up with page 19? Well, the way you get there is one person comes up with a notion, someone else does a little research and writes a paragraph, someone else improves that paragraph, someone else finds a data set, someone turns that into a graph, and on and on and on and on, layer after layer after layer. And page 19 thinking embraces that. It doesn't fight it. It says, show your work, and then hand it to people and say, please make this better. Criticize the work, not the worker. And so that's how we ended up with a 97,000-word almanac with not one significant error in it because everyone had the authority to make it better. The standards kept going up, but your participation could give you satisfaction and joy because no one said, you're an idiot and you're ugly too. What they said was, I can make this paragraph better, and that puts us all in the same direction. Perfect. And by the way, it's beautiful. I have a copy here. So two things come out of that. One, I think, is how do you know when page 19 is done? And what happens if, or how do you prevent multiple contributors? Like, I mean, a list of maybe 30 people touch that page. How do you keep them aligned on what's better? Which, what if two people disagree about what's better for that page? How does that become resolved? Right. So this is the second job of the leader. First job of the leader is to create the conditions for the community to enroll in the journey. And the second job of the leader is to be very clear. They don't have to invent it, but they have to decide to be very clear as to what good enough is. And there's another tricky phrase, good enough, because Mm -hmm. we live in a culture where you're supposed to say, well, it's better than good enough. Well, then you wasted your time. If the definition of good enough is accurate, good enough is good enough. That's what (laughs) we are going for. 
Right. So if I look with an electron microscope at a Lexus, generally ranked the best built car in the world, it's filled with defects. Every single part of a Lexus is not perfect. Perfect is a trap. Perfect isn't the goal. The goal is to be good enough, to ship the work, and then in your next iteration, if it is appropriate, to make it better. That is the ratchet that we all follow. So what we did with the Almanac is my job was to say, this page is good enough. If all the pages in the Almanac are as good as this page, we're going to ship it. Anything you do that makes a page better than this page is fine as long as you're not taking away resources from the other pages that need to get done. And so there's not one page in the Almanac that could not be improved, for sure. And the same thing is true for To Kill a Mockingbird. There isn't one sentence in To Kill a Mockingbird that could not be improved, but she would have been working on it for 40 years. The goal is to the generous act of positive change. And as soon as it's good enough, you have to ship the work. So that sounds like a blank check for missing deadlines or so. Like, and I know what you think about this, but I'd love if you could share with the audience how to navigate that, how to navigate that. Like what if page 19 is not good enough yet? Do you just keep waiting or keep iterating? At what point do you just say, look, it feels like a real unclear space to live in. And I guess that's the job of the leader. But could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's a trap if you want it to be, but I don't think it is. So I've done more than 200 projects in my uh, career. I've never missed a budget and I have never missed a deadline. And the reason is because when I run out of time or I run out of money, I'm done. And I know this. I learned this early in my career when I missed a flight. And on that day, I made a deal with United Airlines, which is if I'm not there on time, they should leave without me. <laughs> and they always keep their end of the bargain. So the idea is this is going to ship on February 27th. We have resources. What is holding us back is fear. And that fear can tie into deadline if you are unprofessional about it. And you can be the kind of person that needs a deadline to scramble at the last minute. And so then the next day you can say, well, it's the best I could do because there was a deadline. And that's not professional. And we don't see that happen in operating rooms because the surgeon never says that. You died because I, you know, I crammed at the last minute. It's not allowed. But there are so many jobs where we believe that we have to bring our authentic, whatever it is, the noise in our head to the work that we dance near the deadline. Well, the word deadline has the word dead in it, not interested. So what my job was as a leader and working with many of the people who were managing the process is to say, the deadline isn't February 27th. The first deadline is September 20th. And we're going to sprint because we're not going to miss that, the table of contents. And then we're going to sprint because by October 1st, we have to have five charts and graphs that look like they're going to look in the book. And if we miss that deadline, we're dead. We're not going to have a conversation about the impossibility of it. We are just going to have these stacked deadlines. And so if you want to sign up to be a professional, what it means is don't make promises you can't keep. But when you make a promise, keep it. Because so many things are up to you. Now, when there's dependencies, then we get back to what we were talking about with Rochelle, about you have a team. There's dependencies. So the question is, as you become more professional, what kind of promises are you comfortable making? 
And so what I've tried to do is, if there are dependencies in my work, I will not make a promise to a client if I don't believe the dependencies can make a promise to me. I want to go back because we you touched briefly on feedback. And I just want to talk about that again, because in the book, you mentioned that we are indoctrinated in not asking for feedback. Totally agree with that. But it's also the only way that we can get better. So with soloists in particular, and we're making change on behalf of others, how do you suggest that we get the right kinds of feedback? Right. I think I might have said criticism. I think that people don't like criticism, but we all like feedback. It's almost impossible to drive a car without feedback. And the curb isn't punishing you, it's doing you a favor. It's explaining to you that you are about to leave the road and you should get back on the road. You don't take it personally when you touch the curb. You say, thank you, now I can go back onto the road. So we need to rewire the difference between criticism and feedback. Criticism feels personal. Criticism says, it's too late to fix anything about this. I don't like you. Whereas feedback says, I just gave you a useful data point about your work. And if the significance you seek comes from the change you're making, this is useful. So an example is, what does a one-star review on Amazon mean? I don't think any published author should read their reviews on Amazon. And the reason is, A, because you already wrote that book and you're not going to write it again. So this isn't actually useful feedback. But B, the biggest one, is if someone gives you a one-star review and someone else gives you a five-star review, what does the one-star review mean? It doesn't mean you wrote a bad book. It means you made a book that isn't for me. So we just learned something about the critic, but we didn't learn anything at all about the book. And so the key to significant work, particularly because for the soloists you're talking about, is understanding the power of the smallest viable audience. The goal cannot be the biggest possible audience because that will water down your work and wreck it. It has to be, who are the 12 clients that would make my year? I only need 12, right? Who are the 200 people that need to sign up for this program I'm running? I only need 200. So in my case, I've been super fortunate, written 21 bestsellers in a row. Not one of them has sold to 1% of the U.S. population. In fact, to a rounding error, I have 0% market share. It's enough. And if someone doesn't get it, if, if, if the book I've written is a one-star book for them, thank you for being clear about what kind of books you want. Robert Ludlum's over there. My books are over here. This is what I do. If it's not for you, Godspeed to you. How do you define the word work in this context? It's a, it's a really old word, and it has like a mile-long definition in the dictionary. In the past, I believe, you used to use the word art in the same context, but you use the word work now. Is, is there... <laughs> What does that word mean in this context? Is it sh something shipped or could it be just creating significance in a team? Which part of it is the word? Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, I get it. It's a great question. What's the honey in the metaphor? We're going to set the honey aside for a second. Okay. Uh, when someone's doing art, they say, how can I do this more? When someone's doing work, they say, how little can I get away with? And if we can change the story in our head, about what we do, then we get to change our days. So I view what I do as art because I want to do more of it. I'm a volunteer. I'm showing up to make a difference. No one's telling me what to do 
to get money in return. In reality, with 7 billion people working on this planet, work eventually becomes transactional. We need to feed our family. So there's going to be work to be done. And part of my contribution is helping people tell themselves a story so they can transform parts of their day from work to art. Probably not all of it, but parts of it. So if I'm going to call a, a, a conversation, a meeting with four peers to get them to enroll in what we're going to do tomorrow, that is easily turned into art because that is human beings I care about dancing with each other to figure out what we're going to do next. If I have to fill in my accounting expense report, that's never going to be art. That's always going to be work. And now new things, tools are coming along, so each of us can do that less. And with the time we free up, if we can find the guts, we can do art. Fabulous. All right, so you raised something that has been on my mind and, and Rochelle and I were talking about before the show, and that's financial incentives. So you already mentioned, you know, people have to put food on the table. And if they're, you know, something like the Carbon Almanac, just to pick something, there's lots of examples to have the sort of privilege to be able to to devote hours and hours and hours of your life to something that may be the best, the most proud thing you've ever worked on, um, but with no, no, you know, it's volunteer, the volunteer orchestra, all of these things are volunteer. Would a financial incentive have ruined the dynamic or would it ruin the dynamic of a project like the Carmen Almanac? Or is there a way to create financial incentives that allow people to put Cheerios in the bowl uh, but don't pollute the work. I made the decision to take money off the table with the Almanac because I wanted people in 90 countries to join me because I didn't want to spend one minute having a conversation about the equity of distribution of money. So we just said, we're going to take every penny of the advance and we're either going to buy trees or promote the book. So we didn't have any conversations after that. But there are plenty of projects where there is money on the table. And I want to talk about two parts of this. The first is, if you're a soloist, the single best way to improve your life is to get better clients. That you can't outsource what you do because you're a soloist. And you can't work any more hours and be sane. So the answer is better clients. Better clients pay you more, demand more, talk about you more. That's how you move up. How do you get better clients? You get better clients by doing projects like the Carbon Almanac. You get better clients... <laughs> by figuring out how to spend one day a week doing something with and for the community that you can point to and say, without interference from a client, this is what I made. And there is no industry you can talk about where I can't point to somebody who has done that. To be the one and only you in that field, that's how you get better clients. I don't think that's why my peers joined me on the Carbon Almanac, but if you want me to explain in an Adam Smith sort of way, what is the machine we all need to own? Well, everyone already owns the means of production. We already own a laptop. So what's left? Well, what you own is your reputation. And if your slogan is, you can pick anyone and I'm anyone, I'm not going to pick you. There's a story in the book about wanting to be a great musician. If you want to be a great musician, it pays to find a band leader who will let you paint. Uh, actually, it might have been from a podcast of listen to about 100 hours of you talking the last week. But <laughs> <laughs> I think you're talking about Herbie Hancock and Jaco Pistorius. Yes, thank you. There's an identity question here because I think there's a, even for soloists or people who are working on their own, there, there's 
this indoctrination, this, this industrialist voice in your head, even if it's not a boss out there applying authority to you, people can do it to themselves. Yes. And this question about the particular phrasing, who will let you paint, reminded me of, it's your turn and pick yourself. Mm -hmm. And is there, how, how would you help someone navigate the identity question of, wait, do I want to be a great musician or do I want to pick myself and be the great band leader? Having been a musician, it feels very gatekeepery to look for a band letter, leader that will let me paint. Oh, the the metaphors are getting murky here. But okay. let me let me explain to folks at home what I had in mind. Uh, Jocko was making a very big difference as a bass player. Herbie had already uh, released one of the most popular jazz records of all time. Joni Mitchell shows up and... Clearly, Joni Mitchell has commercial chops, but if you're in the band for just about anybody who's like Joni Mitchell, you're not going to get to decide what you play because the brand of the Doobie Brothers or the brand of Paul Simon is most of the time when you are listening to that kind of radio star, you're listening to what they decided to do. And so when Herbie showed up, he was nervous because he didn't want to let Joni down. And he asked Jocko, what does she want us to do? And what Joni Mitchell had chosen to do with that record in the four that followed is destroy her commercial reputation so she could go back to making music. And she just didn't want to play the circle game every night. She wanted to create the conditions for people who wanted to take responsibility for their work, to do their work. And the indoctrination, as Rochelle and I were talking about, goes really deep. Most people, given that chance, will not take it. Mm. Most people, given that chance, will say, there's three things on the menu. Which one do you want? And it's safer and easier and more straightforward. But if you're going to bother being a soloist, it seems to me you got to demand a team that lets you paint, clients that let you do more than what's on the manual because otherwise they're going to find somebody else and that other person will work harder than you and way cheaper than you. So I, I want to go over to something that just made me howl when I read it in the book, which is <laughs> soft skills. And I think you called them, oh, real skills, which I love because mm -hmm. I feel like those are the things that are never appreciated in organizations. And a lot of us left organizations because we wanted to be able to use those skills. Can you um, talk about that? Like, wh what do you see as these kinds of skills and why they matter? So real skills are pretty easy to put our finger on. They are things we can list on our resume, words type per minute. Do you know how to program C++ when you hang wallpapers? It's straight and even. These are skills that you can go to school for and that you can prove you have. LinkedIn is filled with them. Real skills are what we actually use to decide if we're happy with something. Real skills are honesty, generosity, leadership, connection, uh, charisma, creativity, a sense of humor. And guess what? They're still skills. There aren't obvious schools to go to for them, but you can get better at them. And, you know, I was, I don't know why it popped into my head. We needed to replace the burner heater thing in our house. And there's 10 people you can call. I don't know the difference. And uh, each one comes, they look around the basement and they say, I'll send you an estimate. The 
third person shows up. I got four more scheduled in the future. The third person shows up. And the first thing he does when he arrives is he takes off his boots and puts on slippers that he brought. And the second thing he does is he hands me a clipboard and he says, I'm going to go downstairs into the basement. While I'm there, just take a look through this list of 40 people who live within a mile of here and see if you know any of their names. Their phone numbers are there too. They've all agreed that any prospect of ours can call for a reference. Wow. And the guy got back up the stairs and I said, I just canceled all my other appointments. Why would I hire somebody (laughs) other than you? Right? Well, I couldn't inspect his hard skill, but I knew his real skill was off the chart. So when we think about what we do, particularly people like influencers, consultants, people who show up saying, I'm smart, is there are other people who are smart. What we're looking for is, do you see? Do you understand? Are you bringing empathy to the table? And you can get better at all of those things. That brings us to false proxies, I think. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the concept of false proxies? And yeah, just let... let, It's, this is one of those things that once you see it, it's just it just keeps hitting you over and over. I just started seeing it everywhere. Uh, yeah, if you could just share that, it'd be great. Yeah, this is one of the most useful big ideas that I've been talking about lately. Um, if you go to the supermarket, you can't taste the mustard before you buy the mustard. You have to make a judgment about which brand of mustard you want. And fortunately for us, if it says, you know, Dij- whatever, Dijon on it, you're going to get what it says it. So the label is effective. It is a useful proxy. And if you get into you know, a, a certain kind of luxury car that you're used to, it's probably going to be just like the car that you were in last time. It's a useful proxy. But we have filled our lives with dangerous, ineffective proxies, things we measure that look like they're going to give us a hint as to what we're going to get, but they don't. And so when we're talking about humans, it's, do you look like me? Are you from the same pack of ancestors as me? Are you tall? Do you present in a way when we're talking that makes me want to have lunch with you? Uh, Are you good at interviewing? Are there typos on your resume? These are all proxies we use for, will this person be a good employee? And in fact, unless you're hiring someone to be on a talk show, none of those things are actually useful measures of whether this person is going to be a useful contributor. So it leads to misogyny and caste systems and racism and all sorts of other problems because people with power and privilege tend to reinforce that cycle. And the opportunity instead is to measure the right things. When someone comes to work for us, are we counting their keystrokes? Are we counting how many lines of code they committed? Or are we keeping track of whether they actually solved the problem we're trying to solve? Because that's not related particularly to the easy-to-measure thing of, did they look busy? So the person who comes in 10 minutes late and leaves 10 minutes early might be your best employee. But if all you're doing is looking at the clock, you don't know. Mm. Can you slide that into useful imposters? Um, I'm not sure they sit next to each other, but the idea of imposter syndrome uh, is rampant. More and more of us feel like imposters. Because if you were a ditch digger... You knew you could dig a ditch. There wasn't a question about it. But now lots of people do work that they can't be sure. And so we feel like a fake, like a fraud. And people say, well, how do I get rid of imposter syndrome? And I say, you can't, and that's a good thing. Because feeling like an imposter is a symptom that A, you're not a sociopath, and B, 
that you're actually doing something difficult, something important, something that might not work, something you can't prove because you're leading. So when you feel like an imposter, the answer is thank you. It means I'm exerting myself. And what it means to be a useful imposter is you're not showing up as a fraudster claiming that some crypto is going to go up in value. (laughs) You're showing up generously imagining and describing a future that you can help happen that will benefit other people. And we need more of these generous imposters, useful imposters. I think we could call them leaders. Excellent. I feel like it. I, I think a couple of threads that we've got going here, I mean, of course, they all tie together because they all are in the book and they're all toward a common goal. But the I just love the imposter syndrome thing because people want, you know, just like you said, the certainty and the and how do you project that? It's like your story about the boiler guy with the clipboard of references. He's sort of showing his work like here are the projects that I did that, you know, he, he couldn't easily show them to you, but you can talk to the homeowners someone you probably know and give you that, I guess, proof is the word that I'm looking for. And similar, you said before about how, you know, getting better clients is like doing better work. And so if that means volunteering one day a week and creating something unbelievable and saying like, look, this is the kind of stuff I can do and attracting better clients Mm -hmm. with that, it's like this proof. It's like this outcome. It's not, I put in this many hours. I would use peace of mind more than proof because your project, the next project is a little different. They can't Mm -hmm. prove... The consultant can't prove that the next project's gonna be perfect, but what they can do is give me peace of mind by earning the benefit of the doubt. Because mm-hmm. leaders bring doubt with them because they're predicting and creating the future. You want the benefit of the doubt because you've earned it. Is that trust? Is it risk reduction? Is it, I guess, well, peace of mind, I guess, is, ties that all together. Interesting. So I know we have a timeline here so i wanted to i wanted to talk about how ai plays into this in the landscape if you wouldn't mind i know you've got this new Mm -hmm. bot on your site which is amazing and i wonder if you could speak to someone who's in the audience who is maybe afraid of ai not in the world ending kind of way but more in the job taking kind of way and what might be a a useful way to view it or view or, or perhaps alter their worldview change their mind about how it might fit into their lives in a good way. So 25 years ago, there were scores, countless scores of mediocre wedding photographers, all hustling to make a living. And when people started carrying really good cameras in their pocket, they viewed that as a threat. And they were correct because mediocre wedding photographers aren't needed because we all have a camera in our pocket. The same thing is going to happen times a thousand with AI. If you're a mediocre copywriter, I can get an AI to do that for free. If you're a mediocre voice actor, I can get an AI to speak for free. If you're a mediocre science fiction cover designer, same thing. So either you're going to become the kind of professional where AI works for you, or you're going to be struggling because you're going to work for AI. And what happens every time one of these technical technological advances comes is some creators leap forward because they have a distinctive point of view, because their reputation stands for them, because they're judged not for their ability to do a thing, but to make decisions. That's what we make is decisions. So it's going to be as big a change in our world as electricity was 110 years ago, 120 years ago. But that doesn't mean you should be anxious about it. It means you should be going really fast. You should be 
using AI right now so you can be smart about what it's good at and not good at. And then you should figure out how can you create value for other people, either by doing something that AI will never be able to do or by doing something alongside of AI. The race to the top instead of the race to the bottom. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And soft, sorry, <laughs> real skills. <laughs> <laughs> Leadership, connection, all that stuff. AI is not going to do that anytime soon. I did know, I noticed with, I use ChatGPT every single day in mid-journey and all of these things. And one thing that I have noticed, I, I trust it for different things. And one of the things I absolutely do not trust it to do is make decisions, which you just mentioned. So there are these things you can plug into it where it goes around and checks your calendar and sends email and stuff. No way, no way. But man, this has been amazing. Seth, thanks so much. Rochelle, did you have... Yeah, I just had I just had one more, and I, you talked about this a little bit when you were with us last time, Seth. But it's in the book, so I was hoping you'd talk about it again. Which is that professionals say no. Yeah, and it was a short but wonderful chapter. Can you talk some more about that? It's I can't believe that it is both so simple and so rare. As a soloist, it's really frightening to turn down a gig when you don't have another gig to take its place. It's really frightening when you're not completely overwhelmed to say no to somebody. But every single successful soloist I know says no better than others. Saying no is the craft. Saying no is saying, yeah, I could use the money, but I don't want to spend my precious time on this. I don't want this on my resume. I don't want to do this work for this money. Whatever it is, if you have an inkling that the no isn't coming from fear, but is actually coming from someone else can serve this person's needs better than me. You should say no and give them the phone number of that other person. If you're afraid that potential clients will find out you have competition, you have a lot of work to do. The reason the books sell is because they're in the bookstore next to the other books, <laughs> right? That a book doesn't sell if it's in a place with no books, that you want to make it clear oh, this person's much better at this and this person's much better at this. This is what I do. And if you want me to do something that isn't this, thank you very much, but you should call Bob Davalina instead. And that shifts your day because it highlights how courageous you are, how much you believe in yourself, and it will be followed by peace of mind and better work. Amazing. Great place to leave it. Perfect. Seth, thanks a million for coming on, seeing us again. It's, it's a treat. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you both. The, the, the research you've done, the quality of the questions, and showing up on the regular with the podcast, it's really appreciated. So thank you for the ruckus you make. Everybody, go buy the book, The Song of Significance. Go to seths.blog slash song. It will be a fixture on your desk, I promise. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for The Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.